Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, having assassinated a top Iranian official, the Trump White House blocked Iran's foreign minister from coming to the UN to talk about it. Sent Defense Secretary Mark Esper out with the playground-ready position that the U.S. isn't looking to start a war with Iran, but we are prepared to finish one, while Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, fresh off lying that Trump hadn't threatened Iranian cultural sites, huffed that, quote, there's been much made about this question of intelligence and imminence, close quote, when reporters dared to broach the matter of legal justification. The overt saber-rattling may be slowing now, but is that any thanks to media? And does it even mean an end to violence? We'll talk about coverage of the Iran crisis with Gregory Shupak. He teaches media studies at the University of Guelph-Homber in Toronto and is author of The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media from OR Books. Also on the show... As well as 25 people, more than a billion mammals, birds, and reptiles are now thought to have been killed by the wildfires in Australia, directly and from starvation, dehydration, or habitat loss. And anyone not invested, financially or otherwise, in fossil fuels accepts that the scale of the nightmare is an effect of climate disruption. But even as it sinks in that severe disincentives are needed to take the glow off the dollar signs in some people's eyes, the Trump White House is pulling out the stops, seeking to absolve federal agencies from even considering the effects of climate disruption on projects like logging or pipelines. We'll talk with Brett Hartle from the Council on Biological Diversity about the frontal assault on what's been called the Magna Carta of Environmental Protections. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group Fair. Tens of thousands of Americans have been in the streets protesting not only the Trump administration's rogue state behavior in the assassination in Iraq of Iranian military leader Qasem Soleimani, but also the danger in which the escalation put civilians in Iraq and Iran and the U.S., where police have already been promised more military-grade equipment. Protesting not only the flimsy shifting premises and imperialist presumption offered now by Trump and Pompeo and Esper, but also the backdrop of the ongoing violence of U.S. sanctions on Iran, leading to shortfalls in food and medicine, sanctions now being threatened against Iraqis as well. U.S. citizens are saying no to war with Iran for multiple reasons. What role is media coverage playing? Joining us now to talk about that is Gregory Shupak. He teaches media studies at the University of Guelph-Humber in Toronto and is author of The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media from OR Books. Welcome back to Counterspin, Greg Shupak. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot of politician statements, media conversations, and actual on-the-street conversations begin with, look, I'm glad Soleimani's dead. He wasn't a good guy. But 
followed by an objection that is procedural or about blowback or consequences. Those objections may be valid, but there's a world of assumptions in that tossed-off disclaimer at the beginning, and it frames the discussion. Whatever you think of its actions, the U.S.'s right to act in Iraq, Iran, the whole region, is a silent guest at every media party, isn't it? It's really one of the fundamental assumptions underlying coverage of these recent developments, but also, you know, U.S. imperial ventures for the longer term, this notion that America and its allies have the right to act forcefully, which really means violently, whenever and wherever they want. And in fact, that's rarely even conceived of as violent, only when there's some sort of countermeasure undertaken by peoples who are living outside of the empire's grasp, only those measures are conceived of as violent. Only those uses of force have their legitimacy called into question. Well, so far the White House seems to be sticking to the line that Soleimani was caught red-handed, actively plotting a big action that would have killed U.S. forces, even though Democrats and some Republicans say the evidence is utterly unconvincing. There really isn't evidence. And when they're asked for it, they kind of say, you know, look over there. But pulling back from Democrats even and their current outrage, you couldn't really call this an accidental escalation. The, the U.S. has been not just threatening Iran for years, but actually hurting them with this policy of maximum pressure. We, we should know some more context when we think about events of the past week. Yeah, for sure. As you uh, rightly noted in your in your intro, the sanctions are killing people. They're causing uh, cancer patients to die from not being able to access medicine. They're uh, interfering with uh, the food supply in Iran when there was devastating natural disaster in uh, Iran in April. The Red Crescent criticized the sanctions for impeding their ability to get aid to victims. This is already, in many respects, a, a hot war uh, that the United States is prosecuting against Iran, apart from whether or not we see the sort of spectacular violence of bombing campaigns, which we do. We've seen plenty of those as well, the Soleimani one, as well as the uh, attacks on the Iraqi popular mobilization units, got a lot of headlines because it was such a brazen assault on one of the most powerful people in Iran. But these periodic bombings of Iranian allied forces in Iraq and Syria have been going on for quite some time as well. So you have this war that kind of barely registers here that has taken place with sanctions even predating Trump, uh, long predating Trump, in fact, during even the uh, Obama-era nuclear accord, there were still sanctions on Iran. So these have very devastating and deadly consequences. And I think that the other factor that we have to mention uh, as far as understanding the context here is the military bases, uh, which there are, uh, I think, 54 U.S. military bases on Iran's doorstep. That is a very, very loud and clear threat to Iran that is surrounded by, you know, the most powerful military on Earth. 
So any Iranian actions have to be seen with uh, a view towards that, with a view towards the fact that they have not only many guns to their head, but also many uh, powerful bombs at their head. And of course, the overarching threat also is that the United States is a hostile nuclear power, not just a hostile power. So all these years, the United States has been saying all options are on the table with regard to Iran. Well, that, by definition, includes the use of nuclear weapons is on the table. I saw a New York Times op-ed headed, The Choice That's Coming in Iran with the Bomb or Bombing Iran. And I found that so chilling. You know, we, we obviously have to kill them rather than permit them to have, you know, and Gareth Porter, of course, has a whole book about the false narrative around Iran trying to get nuclear weapons. You know, it's been shown again and again that they don't have a nuclear weapons program. But if you say there's no evidence they're trying to build these weapons, it's like you have to concede that they shouldn't be allowed to do, you know, what what other countries can do in the region uh, in particular. You know, it's such a weird argument. But I mainly I felt so sad for corporate media's power to limit our perceived possibilities and to limit them so miserably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think ideally uh, the world would be nuclear weapons free. Exactly. Given that that's not the case, it's really, I think, pretty hard to justify the present nuclear status quo where we have a handful of nuclear powers that have self-selected for themselves the power to determine who else is allowed to have nuclear weapons and who isn't. Yeah. Continuing with media, I did wonder, you know, where where are we seeing Iranians in the conversation? I, I saw a Guardian op-ed by an Iranian-American organizer and city councilwoman, Mitra Jalali, saying that her family and families like hers feel sick and terrified, you know, in the same way as they did after September 11th, 2001. And she said... We need you to see through imperial narratives, you know, for, for her mm-hmm. community. It's, it's important that people get around this kind of official enemy stuff that media put forward because it really impacts their day-to-day lives. Yeah, and we're seeing this in this perverse way now where because there is seemingly at least a temporary halt being placed on the potential of a full-scale military war, this is presented as, oh, okay, well, you know, it's only sanctions, right? Right. Uh, In the media, uh, the media coverage presents sanctions as though they are somehow an alternative to war rather than a part of war. And very often, uh, you know, sort of the first phase or an earlier phase in a full-scale armed destruction of a country. So we saw sanctions, you know, uh, as is well known by your listeners, I'm sure, totally obliterate Iraqi society in the 90s. And apart from the 500,000 children that that killed, it also really softened Iraq up to make it a very easy target for invasion. And there was similar dynamic going on with regard to Libya. One of the recurring tropes in the coverage, I've seen it in multiple New York Times editorials. I've seen it in uh, the Washington Post has been publishing at least three former U.S. government officials, one, Leon Panetta, as well as others from the Bush and uh, Reagan administration. And running throughout all of this material is this assertion we hear ad nauseum, which is, 
the murder of Suleimani was justified because he and or Iran more generally are responsible for the deaths of hundreds of troops. Well, for a minute, we can bracket the fact that there's pretty thin evidence about that. And Gareth Porter, who you mentioned, documents this quite well in a, a piece he did for Truth Out in July, where he, he makes clear that he pressed U.S. officials for evidence of this or some sort of proof, and they simply admitted to them that they didn't have any to provide. So that's really kind of a propaganda claim about Iranians being responsible for hundreds of dead troops. And it dates back, as Porter documents, and as Stephen Zunes documented also in The Progressive, to the peak of fighting following the 2003 invasion when essentially Cheney and others from his office started circulating this claim. But I want to point also to this assumption that, well, okay, you know, killing American service members in Iraq justifies carrying out assassinations of Iranian government leaders. So even if Iran were behind that, I want to say that it troubles me. Why does this coverage not say, why does the U.S. think that it has the right to invade and destroy other countries, killing, you know, depending on which estimate you look at, 500,000 to a million following the 2003 invasion? What is it that allows these media propagandists and people in the U.S. state and its allied states to believe that they have the right to invade and ruin countries and not be subject to any kind of retaliation or counter-violence. This depth of imperial ideology are on display here, this presumption that we, the empire, have the right to engage in a full-scale military invasion and years-long occupation, and any act that's done to resist that is illegitimate. It is criminal violence. It is terrorism. But any violence carried out in pursuit of the invasion and occupation, that's just fine. That's allowed. That's just sort of the natural order of things. So this, I think, is one of the more central and deeper and troubling assumptions in imperialist media that the United States and its partners are allowed to kill whomever they want, wherever they want, and no resistance to that is legitimate. Well, let me end finally with resistance. Uh, there's a Marjan Satrapi quote going around about how the difference between U.S. citizens and their government and Iranians and theirs is much greater than the difference between the citizens of the two countries. And that accounts for why more people are in the street calling for actual diplomacy, calling for the U.S. to actually get out, period, than on elite talking head shows. But the protests that we've seen are big and they're across difference and they have a class awareness, you know, that money going for weapons isn't going to schools and so on. And we didn't even mention all the former generals on TV who are currently invested in defense contractors who are on TV yeah. saying, yeah, you know, war does seem like a smart idea. But it just seems to me that folks are seeing through imperial narratives. And that's part of why the demonstrations against escalation, but also sanctions on Iran, on Iraq, are so complex and are so vital and are so interesting. I guess my question is just, are the media who self-define as resistance, 
are they really up to the job of reporting what real resistance looks like? Yeah, I mean, certainly not the mainstream corporate media. They'll be interested in presenting opposition to this war or, or other wars carried out under Trump to the extent that they can represent this as a challenge to Trump's incompetence or personal corruption and so forth. They're not interested in questioning the imperial system, and in fact, they're deeply invested in it. So I think that, as is the case in so many other matters, we need to do what we can to promote independent ideas and information so that there's there's some sort of countervailing force to give people access to uh, different perspectives and different facts than they get in, uh, you know, the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. We've been speaking with Gregory Shupak of the University of Guelph-Humber. His book is The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media. It's out from OR Books. Thanks for joining us, Greg Shupak, this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. You see the horrifying pictures of Australia's red skies, of the charred bodies of animals. More than a billion were now told killed in the bushfires, along with at least 25 people. And you think, how is this happening? And then you hear officials promising defiantly to keep burning coal. And you think, how is this happening? Then you read a story like one recently in Desmog blog about how Rick Perry, newly resigned as Trump's energy secretary, has just rejoined the board at Energy Transfer, the pipeline company behind Dakota Access, now seeking to double the flow through that system. And how Energy Transfer just got a $30 million fine for a 2018 explosion in its revolution pipeline in Pennsylvania, along with the lifting of the permit bar that blocked it from future pipeline projects. And you see how this is happening. Even as we see the reality and know the science, the revolving doors and interlocking boards and public agencies that are decimated and demoralized make possible unthinkable power grabs like one currently taking aim at the right of communities to weigh in on our climate future. Joining us to talk about this undercovered maneuver is Brett Hartle, Government Affairs Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Brett Hartle. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, fill folks in, what does the National Environmental Policy Act do, and what would these changes that have been proposed by the Trump administration mean? Sure. So the National Environmental Policy Act, which everybody calls NEPA for short, is the first modern law of the modern environmental movement. It was passed in 1970. It just had its 50th anniversary a week ago. So it came before the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and all the others. And what it does is it requires the federal government, every agency, to make sure that they consider the consequences, the environmental consequences of their upcoming proposed activities, whether it's building a coal mine, uh, logging a forest, drilling for oil and gas, but even things like, you know, building a new highway relatively non-controversial items that might still actually have unintended consequences. It also 
requires the federal government to consider the voices of the people in the process of making a decision by soliciting public comment, by providing the public with critical information about what might happen if something were to proceed or not. So it's a very uh, sort of democratic law that's designed to give everybody a voice in big picture government decision making. And for 50 years, we've had this law on the books. We've had uh, regulations that uh, set the rules of the game for how this process plays out. Now, for the first time, uh, we're seeing with the Trump administration a very partisan attack, uh, basically taking a sledgehammer to these key regulations that will make this entire environmental review very much a paperwork exercise, cursory, no real discussions of the real-world impacts, and also limits the public's information about uh, upcoming actions, limit the ability to comment by putting in these arbitrary deadlines for completion. And the, the, the driving force in all of this is to help special interests and polluters get their permits faster whether they want to drill for oil and gas or dig coal out of the ground or other really destructive activities. That's what's motivating these changes because they don't help the public. They don't help the environment. This is just the latest gift to the swamp. And these changes kind of tip their hand, if they didn't already, by saying explicitly that you don't need to consider impacts or potential impacts from climate disruption. Isn't, isn't that so? Or do they just mean that? Yeah, the, the latter. Yeah. Um, so what they've done is, in the, the, the regulations up till now, there's a requirement to consider what they call cumulative impacts. And that sort of encapsulates climate because obviously, you know, no one thing, like you said, destroys the climate. But if you drill, you know, 10,000 new wells or you mine a, new, a billion new tons of coal, those cumulative impacts, the greenhouse gas emissions, that's what drives climate change. That's what drives, you know, these crazy fires in Australia. It's not just, it's not one project. It's all of them together. And basically what they're saying is from this day forward, you don't have to consider what happens if you build another fossil fuel coal fire power plant or log a forest or drill another 10,000 oil wells in the West. So it's somewhat indirect. It's a little bit wonky. But the upshot is that climate will just be ignored as if climate change is not happening when it comes to environmental reviews moving forward. And of course, that's huge, you know. I mean, if you pretend that there aren't any costs associated with it, then, you know, your profit is going to look better. Deals are going to look better if you can sort of pretend away certain kinds of impacts. You know, you almost want to laugh at it, but this is going to have, if it passed, and we'll talk about that if it goes through, could have devastating impacts. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say, too, that uh, cumulative impacts, is not just climate. I mean, climate's very important. But right. cumulative impacts, the way I, I describe it, is uh, that is the actual assessment of the real world in all of its complexities and nuances and, you know, feedback loops and unintended consequences and tipping points. And it's the reason that water pollution gets worse the farther downstream you go. It's because one particular instance of water pollution is bad, but when they accumulate, 
that's what makes people sick. You know, air pollution is worse as it gets more and more in terms of like, you know, breathing, you know, the people that suffer are the ones that are feeling these cumulative impacts. Wildlife populations feel cumulative impacts. If you are doing more and more seismic exploration offshore, it's that cumulative noise in the ocean that harms whales. Yeah, I mean, you could say it's penny wise, pound foolish, but the deeper question is really who will pay? Exactly. Some media accounts are dutifully reporting the government's assertion that these changes are about efficiencies, you know, regulations hold up projects. We talked about this a couple of years ago with regard to efforts to, quote unquote, improve the Endangered Species Act. We're not being cynical, are we, to say that the problem is not that in this case NEPA didn't work, but that it it did work, does work. Trump and his cronies love to highlight the anecdotes of the projects that take forever. And, you know, yeah, every once in a while there's one or two outlier projects that take a very, very, very long time. The reason is, is usually they're really, really stupid projects that also probably have huge funding issues and they, they stall out because there's no money to do them or there's not enough staff to process them because the Republicans have been so effective at sort of strangling the government in terms of funding so that, you know, staff were just overwhelmed all the time. Most projects get done in a pretty reasonable amount of time. Going slow to allow people to provide input and thought about what might happen is worth thinking about for a year or two or three, because... If you force these arbitrary deadlines, you basically don't allow for the possibility that something unexpected might happen. And and that's how you really get things like the Deepwater Horizon oil spill disaster or, you know, another pipeline spilling or, or breaching. Catastrophes happen. And if you don't think through the possible consequences at the front end, someone's going to suffer. So... You know, I think it's always better to make the right decision, take time, and make sure you've thought it through. You know, the only ones that really benefit from this notion of expediting it is, you know, the industry people. The people that have to live with this on the ground suffer. And we see it time and time again. You know, you see it in, in low-income communities and communities of color. They bear the brunt of this, as does the environment and wildlife. So, yeah, every once in a while a project goes a really, really long time, but most of the time NEPA works pretty darn well. We've been speaking with Brett Hartle, Government Affairs Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. You can find their work on this and other issues online at biologicaldiversity.org. Brett Hartle, thank you very much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.